open source is full of windowless fans with free candy written on the side. Hi, this is Greg Young. And this is Bill Malik. And you're listening to Real Cybersecurity. So how's the weather up there, Greg? It doesn't matter, Bill, because after what you just told me, I know I only have 365 days to enjoy it. Ah, yes. Well, you know, all these nervous Nellies and their stuff about Skynet going live, I think it's just a, just a hoax. I think AI is going to make us stronger, happier, smarter. It's going to take away all the hard labor, write us beautiful poems, sing beautiful songs, create scripts for wonderful movies. <laughs> if you say it with a Russian accent, it actually be multi-purpose. Then it can be the, you know, the Soviet era compliance with uh, with that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. We're down to 364 days, 23 hours, 58 minutes until Skynet is active, which is 16 July, 2024, as you rightly pointed out. Ah. Oh, at 20 2005 hours. Hmm. I've forgotten that from the movie. So that, that'll give me time to you know, stockpile some diesel fuel and clean water and cigarettes, <laughs> all the things we need for trade in the post-machine era. Yeah. Well, we should have that. We know what theme we're going to do that episode on in one year yeah. from now. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. In other news, our good friends at the uh, federal government, White House, have put out the guidelines for the national cybersecurity strategy. It's actually moving forward. Only three months after, three months, four months after the fact that it was coming was announced. So that's positive. And uh, our friend John Pescatori, I believe, wrote that it's not bad. It's not another checklist. So uh, that's a step in the right direction. Real time is where the action is, my friend. Yeah, it sounds like they've uh, pointed towards, uh, you know, agencies to actually, you know, do things. It sounds very practical. So I think that's not a bad thing. So yes. Uh, 65 initiatives in the 57 page document because I like numbers. So, yeah, uh, well, that's a good thing. I mean, and, and they're all relatively grounded. They're scoped. They're realistic. They, they're based in what organizations are actually facing. And it's not, you know, printed in four color charts to be shown once a year and then put on a binder on the shelf. It's actually got things that need to be accomplished by certain times and some kind of accountability and audit, which is, which is good. Those of you in public uh, companies that have to report to various regulatory agencies will find yourselves not overawed by what's being put in place. It's just practical, you know, good advice. Kind of like, you know, if you're in the IoT space, the electric companies, nuclear power generation, those folks have real strict books of uh, regulations and audits they have to pass. Uh, those of you who are in IoT and other areas like, uh, say, chemical manufacturing distribution you never had life that hard before but uh storm is coming i think where the good news out of this one comes is that it's very easy and typically for you know governments will just issue very generic advice you know don't do bad things you know uh do good things um right you know very very sort of very broad brushes so this is i guess you know with the general advice that was given now this is the you know the accountability framework part of it so uh just reading along with the, my notes here is that most of the initiatives are are scheduled for completion by end of 2024 and early 2025, except for two of the initiatives, which are set for 2026. That, from the government perspective, that is a pretty pretty swift timeline. So yeah, 
Yeah, generally, you know, governments, uh, you know, I've been a been a Fed CISO. You've worked a lot with government agencies over the years. It's hard to move move the needle in government. It's incredibly difficult. And by nature, they move slow. It's not because they're dumb. It's they have a different sort of thing. They're not a profitable enterprise. They have to preserve the public trust and they can't just go out and buy things quickly. That's they can't hire people yeah. overnight. It's it's a hard gig. Now, that yeah. being said, it's really easy to get hung up on committee stuff and get bogged down in the uh, text editing. So I think right. a top-down aggressive set of timelines like that, great stuff. That's, that's, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Because yeah. the boss says you can get agencies to move. So Yeah. And you know, once it gets through that top couple of layers of management, then the individuals who are actually doing the work and the middle management, they will say, okay, now we got to implement this and we know how to do that. In fact, we've been asking for somebody <laughs> to give us you know, the funding and direction so that we don't, you know, end up heading in the wrong place. It would be nice to see, and this is one of the goals, a standardization within federal agencies on what sorts of things constitute a comprehensive information security architecture. I mean, one of the one of the eyebrow raises I got of the whole colonial pipeline thing was it was the TSA. Transportation Security Agency that published the guidelines covering security for pipelines. I was like, of all of all the agencies that have experience in cybersecurity, TSA didn't come to mind as being one of the top five. So, you know, possibilities for apparel, like, you know, your password's got to have 16 characters and it's got to have alphanumeric, you know, and it's got to use three different fonts from two different languages. Right. And, one step back over here, but, uh, yeah, hopefully as written, it's going to lead to a certain simplification in the process and evaluation. So that'll be, uh, that'll be a good step. One of the landmines for any regulation or, or stuff. So this is primarily internal to government, which is good. However, uh, one of the comments I saw was that it's apparently trying to push auto patching, automatic updates, which that's pretty dangerous, right? Mm. So, you know, this is why vulnerability management is hard because it's patching can be very, very challenging. You can break things with it, right? So, you know, a poorly written patch can be the best denial of service attack that no attacker has ever written. Yeah, if that's true, then that, you know, again, some feedback on there. But if they don't get it right, like hopefully people will, you know, push back intelligently on it and say, this is not doable. This is, you know, the cure is worth is worse than the disease. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to auto patch anything having to do with uh, sensors or actuators, which covers most of you know IoT, real time systems generally. Very risky, right? And also the importance of the system you're updating, right? So some stuff's easy to patch, like you know, big deal, all backed up, not a critical system, but you know, yeah. medical device. You know, obviously there's not medical devices in the government or a whole. Well, maybe it is. You know, in the VA or something. I'm not sure what the scope would be. So. That's interesting because that would be under, yeah, yeah, that would have to be a big exception. And certainly the government does have power plants and uh, systems that run buildings that they would want to be in on top of. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I think it's good just the fact that it's top down and you know, that will get some action done. So I think that's that's good public servanting uh, yeah. strategy to do it that way. So Yep. Yeah, because ultimately what it does, it makes life simpler. You don't have to go through first principles and come up with an architecture from scratch to try to solve this. You get something that's a usable template and it takes care of 85% of the work. And then you can use, you know, chat GPT to write the rest of it. <laughs> and then you're done. Right. <laughs> Until uh, it wakes up in 300 and well, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs>
365 days. <laughs> 364 now, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The other story that you and I were talking about now, of course, swing the pendulum the other way, is that the acting from the Washington Post said that the acting national cyber director, Kimba Walden, won't get the job because her personal debt made her difficult to confirm in the Senate. She's yeah. a public servant. Her husband's a public servant. You know, they're putting their kids through private school in, in D.C. area, which is, you know, expensive. And so they have some debt because they're not from money. So they don't think she'll get, you know, get through the confirmation. Like, really? That's, yeah, it's kind of cheesy. That's uh, yeah. a shame. Yeah. I mean, you're losing, you're losing a, a, a good dedicated public servant because they weren't uh, born with a, with a silver spoon in their mouth. That's uh, unfortunate policy making, but I guess, you know, you get a rich boys club and they're going to have their implicit set of rules, right? Yeah. And her being a woman of color it can lead, to, you know, the, the motivations can be questioned in that case too. So it's just, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, Chris Krebs came out good for him said, Hey, look, she, he said she was one of my top lawyers at CESA.gov. So, yeah. you know, there's a great, that, that's a great thumbs up. So, you know, I, I don't yeah. know, no camera personally, but, you know, when somebody like Chris comes out and says, hey, good person, you know, you can say, yeah, probably a really good person. This job. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's not like there's a whole lot of good candidates out there, unfortunately. Absolutely. You need to have right. Right. Yeah. Baseline set of understanding in order to figure out how to. How to move forward on this. I think, did I see her? I think I may have seen her on a, on a podcast like four months ago. I think so. I'm not sure. I'll have to check. Yeah. But yeah, the, the leadership they have now is generally solid. So. Yeah. I like the comment by Katie Mazuris, who's, you know, always calls, calls it like it is. She says, uh, horror, horrified of personal debt. We're actually behind this setback. Are we honestly a nation that thinks it can survive in cyber reality by exclusively relying on wealthy people to get our most important cyber strategy done? Yeah, I think they're spoiled too because a lot of the people who've been in those White House jobs have been people who are on philanthropic leave from big tech where they've made their money. So, yeah, yeah. that's bizarre. That's that's not cool. Hopefully that'll yeah. be fixed. Maybe uh, Congress should uh, get some diversity training. Oh, yeah. they exempted themselves from that. I understand though that they're <laughs> uh, they're getting they're working on child labor laws for the Senate and the House. So there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> Eli Sugarman's comment was that this is a justification that strains cr cr credulity. So, yeah, I think I see it like that. So, oh, well, not a political person, just public servants. Like, come on. It's not really? like there's a lot of people lining up to do that job. Uh, yeah. I mean, to, to be willing to, you know, take a position that's that vulnerable at, for a public servant's salary without having a few million in the bank. Yeah. More yeah. power to her. Yeah, and you're and you've got no job security, right? You're you're fired right. when if the government changes. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember meeting with the um, CIO of the Defense Intelligence um, the DISA, Defense Information Systems Agency, years ago. She had been an executive, or she left and became an executive at uh, AOL. Don Myricks, very very impressive, very powerful person, and uh, she had a superb team. They they do all of the computing for basically the back office for the uh, U.S. military. Huge, huge amount of compute power and great uh, great challenges with logistics and such. I, this was one of the topics of conversation in one of our meetings. This would have been 20 years ago or so, was you know the challenges of getting connectivity up in Iraq. You'd find a building and you'd see three sets of antennas on the roof. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah, the military had the top secret communications, and then you had uh, normal stuff for things like ordering uh, McDonald's. 
that was a very interesting, challenging take on network um, segmentation. <laughs> if yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a. I, I live in a capital city, so there's a lot of embassies here, and it's always funny. You can spot them by the what's on the roofs, just the, right. <laughs> the array of antenna. So yeah, yeah, ham radio fans. That's what I think it is. Exactly. I remember years ago there was a uh, Russian uh, group that had acquired uh, property on the top floor of a building on the New Jersey side of the Hudson. And the reason they paid so much for that particular location was in the direct path of a microwave link from Wall Street to source in, in Philadelphia. And by you know just simply sticking an antenna up, they could get gobs of traffic just out of the air. At that time, I, I'm sure things have changed. Well, maybe I'm not. At that time, intercepting a broadcast signal was not considered wiretapping because it's a right, broadcast right, signal, right? Right. Yeah, over the air. Let's talk about last week's podcast. We never do that normally, but that was a good one. So, uh, our, well, our guest was a good one. I should say that. That was the highlight. Uh, I, I, was, I was really thrilled. He was very generous with his thoughts, with his ideas. It was great. I'm very, very glad he uh, decided to, uh, to participate. It was uh, an honor. Anything that he said that struck you uh, particularly um, near and dear to you? I mean, I really appreciated how thoughtful his answers were and thought out. He was often, you know, we're often challenged to rush to to answers, but all of his all of his opinions were clearly, you know, he, he thought about them before. There was no off the cuff one. So, yeah, yeah, and and especially his linkages around some of the challenges we face now and and where we come from with them. So. That, that was some of the ones I appreciated. He's obviously because his length of time in the industry too. So, yeah, yeah, I was uh, I found it heartwarming his um, remarks about K through twelve early education. He stated that uh, in Vietnam, second graders learn how to do programming, and I thought that was completely fascinating. Now there was an article in the Economist just uh, within the last couple of weeks that was talking about educational attainment. And they specifically called out Vietnam for being head and shoulders ahead of other countries, uh, in, not just in the Vietnam tier, but globally in terms of achievement and reading skill. They, they treat educators very highly. There's a, uh, now they attributed it to a Confucian worldview, but I think it's that plus a more pragmatic uh, approach that, if you have an educated populace that can think creatively and reason its way out of problems, then your workforce is going to be, you know, more motivated to do the right thing. If your if your populace is geared towards uh, conformity and not rocking the boat, then you're going to get a different kind of workforce that you're not going to be as uh, excited about. I, I missed the opportunity to give a pitch for um, the Internet Safety for Kids and Families work that Trend does, specifically bringing – it's a one-hour talk on computer safety that uh, we bring to um, middle school and uh, and high school kids. It does support that. So, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a good chat. Glad we, yeah. glad we got him. Yeah, I mean, I the math rankings uh, by country, things like that, you know. Math yeah. isn't everything, but it's just, it's a foundation thing you need to do, to do other things. Right. So what's remarkable is the math scores reduce, you know, have really taken a beating in, for example, the U.S. in the last few years. However, U.S. is still producing the most top ranked math scientists, almost a thousand of the U.S., China, 116, you know, Canada, 105, France was second with 148. So I know uh, what you can, how you consider that depending on this is just one study, but 
that was the um, uh, study done by Princeton. Yeah, so. the interesting thing there would be how many of those people are U.S. born and raised and how many of them are people who have come to the country for the purpose of getting an education in that. Yeah, good, good point. That would be. I mean, that was that was Spaff's point about his slice within information security. He says it used to be that I can't remember the number he cited, but it was somewhere you know eighty percent or higher are were in the day U.S. And now he said forty fifty percent of the student body is uh, overseas. So we're we're st- we still got the right product. It's just hard for people educated in the high school level in the U.S. to compete successfully for positions when universities are recruiting top talent globally. My take on that is let's improve high school education. <laughs> you know? Right, right. I, I like yeah. living in a country where the smartest people in the world want to come learn and work. I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. I'm just teaching things basics like coding. Like, yeah, is your kid yeah. going to become a coder? Probably not. But just it's like having an understanding of how the world around you works. And there's so much of our lives are now online or impacted by it. Just understanding just how machines think helps you think about machines better yeah so yeah well sure when i was in in high school i i took uh wood shop i took machine shop and i took uh drafting not because i was going to make my life as a drafts person but just because i wanted to learn how to carve things how to work a lathe and i wanted to learn how to repair a car again not because i wanted to become a mechanic but i just really enjoyed getting a hands-on thing and seeing how it how it goes being able to produce a, a blueprint for you know, some simple thing, a tremendous sense of satisfaction. It's almost artistic in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's also the ability to understand what we don't know in order to get better expert help. So when I go to a mechanic, if you're better informed, yeah, you know, you're going to be more successful. The mechanic's going to be more successful because you're going to be able to give them a diagnosis around what you think it could be. You know, right. you've got, you can narrow it down a bit. You're going to save yourself some money. Yeah, you're not, you may not fix your car, but. You know, you'll know if you're getting ripped off and you know if you're you're able to help your repair go faster. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm the kind of person who will drive a car till the doors fall off, right? So I just had my two hundred ten thousand mile checkup on my uh seventeen year old Audi and uh oh, cool. it's doing great. Yeah, it had uh had to put uh new rotors on. They were grooved too deeply to be uh turned, but uh new rotors pads all the way around, alignment and uh off to the races. And I drive that thing like crazy. I drive to my Older daughter in uh, Rhode Island, you know, used to tootle up to uh, to Toronto once upon a time. Used to drive up to Montreal. Um, in fact, we're supposed to have a get together in what end of August or end of September? I don't know if if our uh, our boss was thinking about Ottawa or Dallas, but uh, either would be cool. Hmm. Or somewhere in between. Yeah. 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 Ottawa, I might drive to. That could be. Oh. That's nice. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy long drives. So. Well, you have to extend your trip a bit by a bit because we'll, we'll, we'll tour your boat. So yeah, that's right. I have two, two tours. I do a couple of tours and one of them, uh, is the, the secret world of capital cities to go around where the show, where the spy agencies are and where the Intel ones and the crypto agencies and that hide out right. where they're stuck. It's just outside a building. It's not that exciting from that perspective, but it's the context that yeah. makes it a, a tour. So. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, in an earlier cast about knowing where the hideaway was that the government would run to if there were a you know, serious crisis. And I was like, that would be fun to take a look at, too. Oh, uh, one of my neighbors is a tour guide there. It's two blocks from our home. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Is it an accident? I live beside a Cold War bunker. 
Yeah. We, you know, you, you never, you never want to roll the dice on that. When I moved to, um, Southern Arizona for high school, I remember seeing a map of likely targets. It was interesting because in a nuclear war, the Southern sliver of Arizona, the Gadsden purchase piece of it, South of the Gila river, that was probably the safest place in terms of fallout right. drifting through the air. Cause the prevailing winds were from the West, but drifting more north than south. Well, so we were there two years when the U.S. Army decided to move STRATCOM, Strategic Communications Command, to Fort Huachuca, which is 24 miles west of where I lived. It was like, oh, big it's red X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I have to, you know, duck and cover under my uh, desk in case something yeah. happens. It's <laughs> the radioact- radioactive equivalent of a pig farm going in. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. First time yeah. I was at Amarillo was in the fall and there were, you know, the stockyards are to the Southwest and you get that particular order of a large group of cattle. And they said, that's the smell of money. And since then I've learned that that is correct in more than one sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a very deep thought. Yeah. Uh, we, we continue to see artificial intelligence dominating a lot of the discussions. Yeah. The actors strike. Right. I, I, saw, I right. saw a post from a uh, uh, an individual who uh, was given the option of producing a screenplay, but the contract terms and conditions included a clause that the studio would be able to use his written work to train an AI to build subsequent episodes. And I thought, you know, this this really underscores the cluelessness of studio management, if they think that I would be satisfied with a homogenized, averaged second season of the same shows I saw in the first season, generated entirely based on a statistical model of what people seemed to like. I mean, it seems like you turn on the TV and it's everybody's going to be living in the Truman Show, where you, know, you have random product placements that depend on what your Amazon shopping history is or some such. I mean, it seems like a somewhat hideous, uh, you know, my, more 1984 than brave new world kind of outcome. We had a uh, discussion uh, today with uh, an article you shared on the rise of zombie VCs haunting mm-hmm. tech investors as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a piece, a piece out of uh, CNBC that said that significant number of venture capital firms are not able to, generate the funding for a new venture fund so there there are zombies which in the sense here means that they have funds that they're already running that they have to wind down but they're not able to generate the next fund right i'm not i'm not saying that vc is a ponzi scheme because there actually are you know moments of brilliance there but the facts are that if you invest in five companies one of them might turn into something spectacular couple of them might become better than break even a couple of them are going to going to tank but if the number that are going to become spectacular starts dwindling and interest rates are low and just to have a viable place in the stock market you have to have these incredible pe ratios like 30 it's it's almost like you can't get there from here which means investing in a vc fund is no longer smart i saw an article that said Warren Buffett 
said that when he passes, he hopes his wife puts 90% of her money into an S&P 500 index fund and the other 10% into uh, government bonds. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. The pressure, of course, with the interest rates going up, like you say, there's no cheap money anymore for uh, to pad this. So it makes it difficult for not only the the VC funds to access money, but, uh, you know, the startups themselves are going to be starved. So they're going to have a greater need for external funds, Hmm. uh, whether private or venture back. So, um, yeah, it's interesting squeeze. What's unclear to me is whose pressure becomes greater is it the pressure on the acquiring companies because there are fewer companies to pick from? We all see these, you know, large cyber stack or large tech companies. You have to buy something every quarter to make the investors happy. They're going to keep doing that, but are they going to end up paying a lot more because there's fewer to choose from, or are they going to end up paying less because it's a distressed marketplace? Right, right. Because the uh, the target firms, the ones being acquired, are just not able to. Uh, to make the money because they can't invest in marketing. They can't grow their sales organization fast enough. Yeah. So it becomes a, like I say, a distress sale. I mean, good people will still be good people, but you know, the, the problem is after having been, well, you and I both been around the block with startups a few times, you know, there's, there's always a promise of a great return out there. And then if it doesn't materialize, people say, Oh gee, I just spent, you know, four years of my life on something and all I got is this lousy t-shirt, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I was hoping to put my kids through college or at least remodel a kitchen. And now it's uh, you know, back onto Indeed or LinkedIn.com to search out a next gig. That's tough. Yeah, much like our earlier comment on wealth, it seems like the ones who are doing most of the startups now in AI, for example, like uh, in general, are folks who come out of big companies already and are wealthy rather than the traditional young entrepreneurs. Uh, we're doing there's that's still there but it's much tougher for them and it's much easier for the for the wealthy the haves to do a lot of these startups so people yeah. at least at least need the wealth but maybe it's good in a way i, I guess the other side of it is that they're they're not as beholden to uh, traditional investors that way so maybe their their hands are a little less shackled and what they can do and can't do well that 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 could be the case although we did have a discussion about what kind of pressure it takes to generate you know, really spectacular results. And if you're already well-heeled, there's always going to be the question, you know, are you doing this to stay out of the spouse's way? Or are you doing this because you really have a burning desire to uh, to, to do this? And somebody who's well-heeled doesn't have a sense of urgency. They may not feel that same uh, fire in the belly to get this uh, latest and greatest iteration of stablecoin out or whatever the heck it is. Well, it's great to see some uh, some sanity returning to um, one part of the market anyway, which is the back to my one of my areas of interest on the fintech side is, you know, there, there seems to be almost no news at all about anything blockchain related nowadays. It's it's very rare to see that come up. In fact, a lot of blockchain labeled companies are trying to relabel themselves, the startups, intentionally just to avoid that label. Right. On the other hand, you know, AI is hot. But on the other the other part of fintech is definitely that. You know, there seems to be some mature players coming out there. Uh, I did see Revolut got hacked the other day as well. They're, they're mm-hmm. in their news, unfortunately, for the, the wrong reasons. Very reputable brand normally yeah. in the space. So it was, uh, it was sad to see that um, that they were in the press. Weren't they? No, it was, something, it was somebody else who was hacked before. So it's not like a, a, a repeat on them, is it? Um, this is the, I think the link was that there was a common attacker Oh, um, oh, oh, this was, this right. was that supply chain where the, um, bad guys got in through, what was it? The phone system or something like that, that there yeah, was an upstream. Is, 
this has gone on, on over a number of years, actually, uh, depending on which attack you look at. So it's um, uh, the common attackers uh, looks like they were also involved in BT group uh, attack and some other ones as well. So okay, seventeen year old apparently. So oh, yeah, yeah, that's a shame. I mean, do something that foolish and taint your career for a long time. Right, right. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah. The fintech firms, because there's money involved, of course, are such big targets. So, yeah. Sure. This sure. year, lost the last 20 million in this one, which we've seen bigger cleanup efforts. <laughs> you know, than, yeah. Than what right. was taken here, it's still 20 million, though. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the points that SPAF made was that when you take a look at the actual implementations of blockchain based cryptocurrencies, they seem to support four markets. There's uh, the government of North Korea, gun dealing, illicit drugs, and human trafficking. He says, and none of those seem to particularly demand <laughs> the attention of most functioning adults. So I, I just don't think they found their uh, their target market. Although there was an interesting piece, in fact, it was in the Gartner Predicts event. I saw a, uh, a pitch, but I haven't seen the actual report that apparently organizations are becoming aware of the fact that following a breach where the information security team is, you know, really under the gun to figure out what happened, to fix it, to make sure it doesn't happen again, put remediation in place and do it all by five o'clock, please. And it's now 440. You end up seeing folks getting so burned out that they're leaving. They're not only leaving the security team, but they're leaving the business. They're leaving the industry. They're, they're going to go, you know, grow sure. okra on that commune in Oregon that they were dreaming about when they were in college and just are done with it. That's really, that's really a shame. Organizations need to spend a little more effort on how you're going to rehab your team after they go through the trauma of dealing with uh, a noisy, vexing problem. I don't think it's a untrue statement to say that the culture in cybersecurity is bad enough as it is. Uh, then to go through an event like that, add a pressure, they, mm. you know, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously bright lights in the middle of cybersecurity, but in the majority, it's a pretty tough business on people. It's, yeah. it's, it's not the, um, yeah, that's not a great characteristic normally is the culture. So say when you, when you have so many organizations that are not functioning at a level of maturity, you see, now we made it so far before I mentioned the capability maturity amount. This is really a red letter day for me. Uh, <laughs> where you have, you know, well-documented responses and procedures in place and so on. When, when your organization relies on either a heroic individual to solve a particular problem or worse, you don't have any of those. And so everybody goes into crisis mode all the time. After a while, that just gets boring. Right. And you say, you know, even if I'm earning a fairly good salary, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to look for something somewhere else it can be a grind and and that one falls squarely on the shoulders of senior leadership because it's the tone they adopt at the top that will determine if the organization can invest in develop and sustain culture that performs at that level it's doable i've worked with organizations that have done it but sadly 90 percent of organizations just can't gather together to get that done uh, yeah and I, I know there's i'm not sure if it's machismo or, or what they you know and yes this is you know of course it's a bit of a firefighter kind of culture in a way but especially yeah. when there's so shortage of short of people and skilled people like why would why do we do this it's so counterintuitive it's it's like the, my yeah. flat earth thing you know the, the flat earthers why you know what you know why why can you persist in this when you know it's not right so, yeah but it yeah. just cost us some flat earth listeners so sorry about that bill 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry, Joe. We'll, we'll, we'll see you next time. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's, see you on uh, the flip side. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hey, about Revolut. Um, there was actually a couple of, uh, there was a data breach back in 22. That was the one I think had the multiple links. But then this most recent attack was uh, money loss. And there, were, there was a, uh, it was actually a flaw that was discovered, not a classic sort of, you know, zero day kind of, but it was just in the process of exploiting, well, I guess it would be a zero day in a way. Uh, there's a flaw that was known about between when you withdraw money and then return it. Oh, and uh, it would okay. be calculated differently. Oh, and, so uh, I think was it was, uh, yeah, I think it was some arbitrage over um, what the different exchange rates were. To me, that's that's coding practices. You've got, to, you've got to make sure that the way the money gets from A to B is going to reflect what it should do when you get from B to A. And and some people haven't quite got that one nailed down. But that's a solvable problem. You know, document your procedures, implement it, make sure it, you can know, test it. It is possible to avoid that. And and by the way, I'm not you know talking through my hat here. I I ran the build and test group in Poughkeepsie for you know, my team for. Uh, two and a half, three years. And I know how complex these things are, but it is entirely doable. Just have to put the right balance in place. I remember hearing that in Microsoft in the 90s that they had five testers for every four developers in an attempt to you know, use masses of people to, to do that. What we did in IBM was we had one tester for every four developers, but extremely heavily automated and for every line of code produced there were three lines of test cases produced so you had three million lines of code in the mainframe operating system but you had this regression bucket of you know 12 14 million lines of code and you could run the whole os through that and make sure you hadn't reintroduced any problems problems found in the field we not only fixed it we built a addition to the test suite to make sure it didn't show up again and you know you you, you can do that it's uh, it's doable so yeah, it sounds it sounds like a lot of money, but the alternative is you end up getting hacked. And unfortunately, folks, the people who put stuff in in GitHub are not always the most rigorous, procedurally <laughs> attuned. Stranger developers. danger, stranger yeah. danger. <laughs> right. Blisco's got to be secure. It's been out there for ten years. Millions of developers have looked at it. Yeah, they've they've looked at the title. They've looked at what the inputs need and the outputs give, and they say, yeah, this will fit our needs, and they slap that puppy in there, and you're off. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. GitHub is full of windowless vans with free candy written on the side. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I was about to say open source would probably, in fact, I would modify that to say open source is full of yeah, windowless vans with free candy written on the side. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> it was an episode of The Big Bang Theory where they were trying to come up with a way to get better comic books in the hands of kids and they said well we'll get a van and we'll you know just pass out comic books and yeah. now one of the characters says, where well, are you going to give free candy well we will now that's a great idea it's like you, you don't understand you're heading down the wrong path uh, uh, oh well cool well so we've hey. solved a couple of the world's problems oh yeah i think we've most of them at least yeah yeah uh what about on your reading and watching list what's uh what are you consuming these days Oh, I, um, I'm, I'm still pursuing Joyce. I'm still going crazy for that. I got, uh, in fact, I gave a, a good friend of mine, a copy of the first piece of the wake. It was a slim, like 30, 40 page volume called on Olivia Pluribel. It was the first chapter that he completed. It was published, uh, 1928 or so. And it's just beautiful. It's mellifluous, it's sonorous and, and 
Joyce himself said, this is just a simple story of two washerwomen who are cleaning clothes on the banks of the Liffey, and they have a conversation about the people whose clothes they're cleaning, and then as the sun sets, they turn into a stone and a tree. Wow. <laughs> it continues to be uh, just a just a joy ride. I'm 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 lost. I'm completely sucked in this. I bought three books on various aspects of this in the last uh, couple of weeks, and now I'm buying them for friends. So I'm I'm beyond help. Oh, How about cool. you? Cool. Uh, I just picked up. Um trilogy uh ian and banks the scottish uh science fiction authors cultures culture trilogy first mm. book is called uh consider uh, phlebas uh his first name is spelled i-a-i-n i'm uh, taking a break from uh, i i got backlogged with heavy reading um, and i'm bogged down so i'm going to bounce back and forth between some science fiction and then the heavy lifting of some of the cybersecurity reading and some of the history reading i do so yeah yeah what about uh visual media Movies, TV shows? Uh, I just watched the Dungeons and Dragons movie with Chris Pine. Oh, how was that? I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. It is just fun. It is just fun, fun. Not not as, you know, I often found myself comparing it to The Witcher a lot, but it's a different beast. It is just, it's fun. Just incredible fun. Well, Hugh Grant as a grown-up is really quite charming to see. I enjoyed him in The Man from U.N.C.L.E. also. I like older Hugh Grant. He is sour and, you know, he is uh, crotchety. Uh, I like Hugh Grant now. Like, I never disliked him, but now I really like him. So, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's That's surly. Good, yeah. Not yeah. yeah. the movie, but he's, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a different actor now. Cool. Yeah. I've been binging the original Star Trek series. Uh, they've remastered it. They haven't updated the, uh, the, the tech. That would really break the uh, mold, but... Uh, just seeing how wonderful the scripting was. Uh, the first season had 30 episodes, 30 episodes wow. in one, in one year, they were shooting them once a week. They were writing the script as they were shooting it. So it was just, just a trip. And the caliber of the actors they got, the caliber of the writers they got really wonderful and inspiring. It, it reawakened my love of the, of the roots. If you get a chance, a uh, nice way to reconnect with some of the origins. I, I'm still of the opinion that Gene Roddenberry, along with Gene Kuhn and, uh, Dorothy Fontana will have done more to define the way we see ourselves as a civilization than Karl Marx did. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, you know. that's the hill I'm on. <laughs> yeah. My son and I went to see uh, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse and it was uh, much better than I expected. It's fully an it's animated throughout. And I thought I was kind of disappointed slightly. And, but then I thought, well, you couldn't tell the story without it being right. you know, fully animated. So I was, uh, that was a great, uh, that was a great watch. One of those few movies you enjoy from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. Those, that production company is wonderful. Very, very good people. And I like that. Uh, I, I did like that show a lot too. Yeah. Cool. Very nice. As we live in the cyberverse, which has only yes, one, one real dimension. <laughs> Although interestingly <laughs> enough on a parallel track, very few companies are now bragging about how much they're investing in the metaverse. Oh, yeah. So come on been a guys. Fan? Yeah, really. Oh man, you're gonna make you're gonna want to make me sell all my my board ape NFTs. Oh, oh wait, <laughs> I don't have any. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. We don't want to you know mess with the market here. But uh... Uh, I was such a crypto naysayer that people who you know remember me being that way now tease me about you know because crypto's you know kind of gone into the bucket. They tease me and say, "Weren't you in? Weren't you heavily invested in crypto?" <laughs> <laughs> No, I was yeah. not long on crypto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good insult. That'd be a good burn. Yeah. He went long on crypto. <laughs> Oof. Ouch. Yeah. Oof. 
Well, you know, people went long on PKI. You know. Oh, well, you know, there's you and I both know people who live in the houses that PKI built. So, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, they had a good run. Well, anyway, always a pleasure catching up with you, Greg. This is uh, this is good. Good talk. Hey, likewise. So, until next time, this is Greg Young and Bill Malik saying farewell from cyberspace. Oops, no. <laughs> Be well, guys. That brings us to the end of this edition of Real Cybersecurity. I'm Greg Young. And I'm Bill Malik. Thanks for your time and attention today and joining us on our journey. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Real Cybersecurity, and our email address is podcast at realcybersecurity.net. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>